I, uh, how many of you guys noticed a few weeks ago when the Powerball got over a billion dollars? Did anybody notice that? It got to $1.4 billion. Raise your hand if you noticed that. Um, who's like surprised I'm opening up with a story about Lotto? And just checking to see you guys. Is he talking about Powerball? Uh, so when it got to $1.48 billion, I don't play Lotto because it's the poor man's tax, right? Like all, whoever bought a ticket, you didn't win, did you? Right? I'm just saying, we just, we just, just flush your money and be happier, right? Because now you ain't stressed about it. Uh, I bought a, I've, I've bought a probably, I don't know, 10, 15 uh, lotto tickets in my lifetime. You know what's funny? I never checked to see if my number's won. So that's even stupider than playing lotto is buying the ticket and then never checking. Someone's like, you could have won. No, I didn't. I didn't win anything. Like, nobody wins anything. That's why you don't play. Anyway, um, but I did. I bought two tickets for the you know, $1.4 billion. Uh, and after taxes and all that stuff, you're only going to be able to keep about $850 million. So that's it. How am I going to survive on that? And then when you buy a lotto ticket, your brain just starts going, oh, my gosh. Like for the next week, are you thinking, what would I do? What would I do? What would I do? How many guys have ever bought a lotto ticket? Raise your hand. Uh, who did not raise your hand because you're a liar? Okay. Right? It becomes incredibly distracting. Like, what would I, if I won, if I got, like, after taxes and everything, $850 million. Okay, Citizens Bank, which is where I bank, that's not a promo form, it's just where I bank, right? They would have somebody in my front yard every day. Hey, we've got some investment vehicles for you, and blah, 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 blah. And Bank of America, which is new in Stoughton, and Abington Bank, which is just right down the street from me now, they'd all be in my front yard. So would all y'all. It was like, I go to your church. You need to give me some money. Like everybody, in, like I would show up with a mask so that nobody recognized me because I've seen people do that. Like you have to show up in person to collect your money. They get to take pictures of you. But if you're wearing a disguise, they don't make you take that off. So I would show up in a Groucho Marx thing or something like, I wouldn't because you guys would go, that looks like Sean. <laughs> you guys, I know, I know that joker and I know where he lives. He says Seaver Street all the time. I'm going to go on Seaver Street and who's, see who's got the new G-Wagon, and that'll be Sean. It won't be a G-Wagon, trust me. It'll be somewhere way more than that. Um, anyway, uh, what would I do? What would I do? So you start thinking about all the good that you would do. I'd probably give everybody on my street $1 million. I would. That way they'd be my bodyguards. <laughs> Y'all don't let nobody down Seaver Street, right? Like, you guys, we're all on the same team, right? Everybody would be like, yeah, but you only gave me a million. You're like, I know you got more. And I was like, I don't even know you, dude. Go back up your block. Anyway, uh, my family would all get a little something, something, right? I'd do some other something, somethings, and then I'd, but like my, I couldn't stay on Seaver Street because there'd be too many weirdos in my front yard. Yes or no? I'd have to get security. If I got security, then all my neighbors would complain. I'd probably have to sell the house that I raised my kids in. And uh, like, well, I don't think I could be a preacher anymore because this church would be packed and it wouldn't have anything to do with Jesus. Everybody just want to meet me in the Connection Center and tell me about this. I ain't asking for money. I just want you to pray that God gives me money. <laughs> you know that would happen. But I couldn't be a pastor anymore. Like, where would I work at? Honestly, if I had $880 million, $850 million, my life would be over. Like, I'd have all kinds of money. But the stuff that brings value to my life would be gone. Something I don't, I don't know if I would, 
Like, I think that it would take as much as it would give. And the stuff that it would take, I don't know that I'm willing to let go of. Some of you guys are like, ah, hey, if you win the lotto, preacher, just give it to me and I'll let you know how it goes. Right? I'll test it out. It reminds me of that uh, line in uh, Fiddler on the Roof. It's my dad's favorite movie. Uh, Tevia is poor. And uh, he's, a, he's a farmer. And he's in Tsarist, Russia. And this is when Russians are, that Russia was cracking down uh, on, on Jews and tell them they had this much time to get out. They were going to kill him or throw him in the gulag. And that's the, that's the time period uh, for the show. And uh, he want, he's, he's just poor, man. Everybody's poor. And the rabbi says, it's a curse to be rich. And so that sticks in, in Tevye's head. And uh, so he's at his barn, and he's complaining to God. He's talking about wishing that he could have the money of, you know, wise King Solomon. And uh, he's like, but I know it's a curse to be rich. He goes, but, and this is the line. He goes, if being rich is a curse, then may you strike me with it, and may I never recover. <laughs> Isn't that a good line? That's my dad's favorite line in the whole movie. I don't, they say, they, whoever they is, they say that money doesn't actually change you. It's more like a volume knob. The more money you have, the more you turn up your character, either good or bad. Right? We know rich people who are horrible people, and we know poor people that are wonderful people. We have rich people that are miserable, and you have poor people that are unbelievably content and happy in life. So I don't know that beyond being able to take care of your basic needs, like how much that's actually going to change anything as much as it just reveals who you are. And what you did with that money would be based on decisions that you made. And the decisions that you made would reveal your values. Because your values, they're filters. That's all they are. It's a filter. Like if your children are more important to you than money, then you're less likely to take the overtime shift, even if it means you buy cereal off the bottom shelf so that you can make it to your kid's little league game. Do you see what I'm saying? That's how that value affects a decision. Now the value is the filter through which you would make decisions, and the decisions are the mile markers that we pass on our road towards either success or failure in life. And I define success, I want to define success, um, through a biblical worldview. And there's this verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that says this. For we are God's masterpiece, which is, can we stop for a second? Uh, that's how God sees you. Now that, that might not be what people have been speaking into you, but they're wrong because they're not the ones who made you. Even your mom and dad didn't know that that time that they were together would end up with a child. They, they didn't know that that was the moment. I mean, God did, but they, they didn't know. For we are God's masterpiece. He says, I'm actually, like you're a work of art. Some of you guys are like, well, I'm a freaking Picasso. I got noses over here, and I, my wife and I on vacation, we, we uh, took a vacation in August, and there's several different Picasso museums around the world, and we went to one of those Picasso museums. I walked in, and I was like, this is trash. <laughs> Has anybody ever actually looked at a Picasso painting? I've seen second grade art that is better. Somebody say amen. Why was his so important? I, like, I, honestly, my kids have painted better pictures than Picasso. And I threw there's a way too. Anyway, I'm just saying. <laughs> my wife has a bin. Anybody have a 
So my son Garrett was in our basement this past week and he, um, he found the bin that my mom had been saving all of my stuff. And homeboy just starts going through all my personal stuff, history. He found a love letter that I wrote in fifth grade to a girl named Ruth. And he goes, who's Ruth? And I honestly do not remember her, but apparently I was gonna marry her. Anyway, uh, that had, it's, it's the, the, the uh, uh, where, where's masterpiece? God's, God's trying to do something. And, and, and here's the thing, with really good, like really good artists, a lot of times you can't tell what the painting's even going to be until they're done. Like it doesn't like shape up until the end. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a bunch of blotches, 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 blotches. And then all of a sudden, like the last 15 minutes of it, you're just like, oh, wow, wow. You ever seen a painting that you thought was done and then the artist comes over and then they finish it and you're like, wow. Because like this part that wasn't done was still beautiful, but then when they finished it, you're just like, like that's why I'm not an artist. Like I'm Picasso, you're actually an artist, right? Like my stuff's, anyway. Um, you're a masterpiece. God's trying to do something. Now you're either cooperating, like so in my head I visualize this as a canvas. And so God's trying to make, he's, he's painting. And there are times when I go, no, I don't like that. No, I'll, I'll, and I, I'm trying to grab the paintbrush out of his hand. I want it to look more like this. And God's like, all right, let's go, go for it. And then, and then after I've screwed up the painting, I go, I'm sorry, will you fix this? How many guys have ever done that? God, I'm sorry. And you, gave, you like tried to give him back the paintbrush. You're like, you need to make it look pretty again. Right? Uh, and then until we think we're smarter than him, then we grab the paintbrush again and we screw it all up. I'm like, okay, I did it again. Here we go. Right? That, that's, that's how I picture this. Back at it. Uh, we're God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus. So here's that second line. He created us anew in Christ Jesus. When, if we're going to stick with the, the canvas thing, what God does is when you come to the place where you accept that you have personal responsibility to a holy and righteous God that you have rebelled against and you've done horrible things to people created in his image and you're going to be accountable, right? And if God is good, he can't let you off the hook because a judge that would let guilty people go free is not good. That dude's crooked. So God can't let you off the hook if there's any justice or goodness in the world. Like sin must be paid for. But God would do is he'd allow somebody to take your place. But the only person who can take the place of somebody who's guilty is somebody who is innocent. But who here is innocent of ever rebelling against God or being a jerk to another person? None of us are innocent. That's why we need Jesus. He's the only one. So for those of us who get to the place where we accept that Jesus is the son of God who lived this life without, by the way, no other religion is founded on somebody who never broke any of God's laws. Jesus actually, and it's not about Christianity being better than any other world religions. That's not what it's about. There's just only one person that qualifies to be the substitute for people who are guilty. That's all. I don't think Jesus came to start Christianity as a brand. He came to reconcile all of mankind to himself. So if you're Muslim and you accept that Jesus is the son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead, which they don't, but if they did, they could be reconciled to God because it's faith in Jesus. Are you with me? It's Jesus. He's the one that matters. Jesus is the one that matters. It's about Jesus because he's the only one that qualifies. So when you turn from your sin, God, you acknowledge, I, have, I am guilty as charged. And you go, but I heard Jesus would pay for this. Will you accept his payment? Yes, I will. Will you follow him? Yes, I will. Boom. 
judge goes innocent. Not because I am, but because Jesus goes, I paid for his sins too, right? When that happens, God takes the old canvas off of our wooden frame and he gives us a brand new canvas. Now here's what's really cool about that canvas. You can put sin on it, but it don't stick. That's what's really cool about that canvas. So back to the verse again. You are God's masterpiece, given a brand new canvas in Christ Jesus. Why? So that we can do something. What is it that God intended us to do? Good things that he prepared when? Before you were ever born. That's success. Success is getting to do everything God planned for you to experience. Like you're not the one who came up with the idea of you, neither your mom and dad. Even if they were having ki- trying to have kids, they didn't know it was gonna be you. God did though. There's another verse in the Bible that says that God, he, it says the boundaries of your habitation and the time in which you dwell was established by God before he laid the foundations of the world. The boundaries of your habitation, where you would live, that you would actually be here in Avon today. God knew this before he laid the foundations of the world. The time in which you would live was established by God before he said, let there be light. He actually thought of you. That's crazy, right? And then he actually planned a life for you and then designed you to match that. You are perfectly wired for the life he intended you to get. Like that's, like, that's awesome. That would be success. How do I get that? The decisions I make, which come from the values through which I run every choice. So there are four core values about who I am as a person that I have adopted for my life that matches, not coincidentally, the four core values of this church. And I think that these four core values ought to, at some, in some way, become a part of your core set of values. The first one is that we're biblically centered. That's the first one. We're biblically centered. It has to be the first one. When God calls Joshua to take over from Moses, and by the way, you know that was a horrible job. Who wants to follow Moses? The greatest leader of all human history, right, outside of Jesus, Moses, and, like, and then Joshua. When, like, and, you know, when people found out Joshua was taking over, they might have been, oh, you're going to suck. And that was just his wife, right? Like, who's going to follow Moses? Like, that's a big job. I don't, like, you don't want to follow the most successful leader in all of history. In fact, the Bible says that God buried Moses. He's the only person God ever buried. And the Bible actually tells us the reason why God buried Moses, because he didn't want Satan to know where he was at. Because the Bible says that Satan was going to get the Jews to find his bones because he knew that they would worship his bones. That's why God goes, I mean, that's how popular this dude was, right? And then God goes, you're up. <laughs> Immediately, homeboy had to change his underwear. You know he did. That, that'd be terrifying. And here's God's, by the way, and he, I know he was terrified because Joshua chapter one says so many times, be courageous. Why would God have to say, be courageous, be courageous, be courageous, if he was already courageous? Like he was, like he was like, he was terrified. This is the instruction God gives him in Joshua chapter one, verse seven. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful 
Here's what I want you to do to be successful. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate them, turning either to the right hand or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Verse eight, study this book of instruction. What book of instruction had Moses completed? The Torah. That's all he had. When Joshua was alive, the only part of the Bible that existed was just the Torah. Maybe the book of Job. Some scholars think that the book of Job was actually chronologically written before. I don't know. But the Torah, that's all he had. Can you imagine going back to Joshua and go, by the way, there's going to be 61 other letters from God. What? Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. Like how many times have you read it? I haven't read it yet. Wait, what? Like how, how long have you had it? All my whole life. Like that would be just insane to him, right? That would be crazy to him that we would have this much access to the will of God for mankind and do so little with it, right? So he says, this book of the law, study the book of instruction continually, meditate on it day and night so that you'll be sure to do everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. Prosper and succeed. What does that mean? Do everything I planned for you. Like, you're not an accident. You might have wished you were taller or shorter or lighter or darker or higher metabolism, lower metabolism. That's for those of us who blame it on metabolism. <laughs> right? But you are who God made you to be. Own this. Right? But he says, but what I want you to do is not whatever you want to do with it. Like, you didn't choose your personality, your IQ. You didn't choose that you'd have psoriasis in your 30s and a hip replacement when you were 47. And now that you're 53, you need your other one done. But this one, I'm going all bionic. I want to dunk again. Right? Like, I, there's things I, you're like, oh, but your diet did that. Okay, my diet did that. You're right. Um, but man, sugar is so good. Anyway, um, but what I, everything that I've made with my life, I've only leveraged what God already gave me, right? Uh, and I'm fully responsible uh, for every bit of this. And God says, to be successful, here's what I'm gonna do. Uh, I'm gonna give you a book of instruction. And if you do that, you'll get to the life that I intended for you. And what we want is we want God to show us the whole thing first. Like, I want to see the whole movie, and then you can put me back in the movie, and I'll be fine with it as long as I know how it ends. Nope. Because it takes no faith to live that way. And what pleases God is that you trust him. That's what pleases God. Just like a dad. I've, I've asked every one of my kids to jump off of things they should never have jumped off of because I would catch them. Because it brings me pleasure when my kids trust me. When my kid jumps off a ladder because he knows daddy will trust him, it terrifies my wife but fills my heart with joy. Right? How many of you, has any, any dads ever had their kid, any dads ever thrown their kids in the air a little bit inappropriately too high? That is the joy of a father, is to risk the life of their children. And don't you forget it. I mean, if we killed you, we'd just make another one. Right? That just fills a dad's heart with happiness when his kid just runs and then just jumps off a table. Right? That's just, oh my gosh. Woo! Like, and, and why would God want any less? So he goes, I'm not going to show you a video of me catching you before you jump off the table. 
I want you to jump off the table and trust that I can catch you. So here's what God does. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light to my path. God goes, I want you to light up the whole road. God goes, nope, I'm gonna show you where your foot should go next. And that's all I'm gonna show you. But if you keep taking that, then you'll get enough light for the whole path. But I'm gonna show you where your feet need to go next. And that's all he gives me. God doesn't give me everything. He doesn't. I wish he did. No, I don't. Because if he told me that I was someday going to be a pastor of a church, I might not have ever gone to Bible college. I want to go to Bible college and be a youth pastor. And people say, are you going to be a pastor someday? Nope. Don't want to be a pastor. Right? Don't want, don't want, don't want that at all. Don't want that responsibility. You don't want. I, don't, I'm, I just want to, I want to do hay rides, paintball activities, and overnighters. That's what I want to do. Right? Because that, that's the best. Like, I'm, I'm, I want to I be a grown-up kid. That's what I want to be, and I want to get paid for it. And that's why I was a youth pastor. It's the best job in the world. I want to be a youth pastor the rest of my life. Never want to be a pastor. So if God had told me this was my future, I would have bailed on him a while ago. So that's probably the reason why he doesn't tell you everything. It might scare the living tar out of you, because you ain't ready for that. Right? One time, uh, I was going on a trip, and uh, Garrett was, I think, four or five. And I was like, all right, buddy. And I'm trying to like, have this like, cool father son moment. I'm like, all right, you're going to be the man of the house while I'm gone. He goes, okay. He goes, I need you to take care of mom. And then I started making it like, if a bad guy comes in, you got to get him. And I just went like deep on it. And then he just started like getting terrified. And I was like, okay, I showed him too much of the path. He only needed the light for his foot, right? He didn't need me to show him the whole road. Cause like, he was like, that's way too much responsibility. But like, if you want me to hug mommy a lot while you're gone, I can hug mommy a lot while you're gone. Right? So all, I, all he could handle was enough light for his next step. So God says, that's what my word is for you. I'm not going to tell you everything. I'm going to tell you the next thing. And some of you guys, there are things that you know that you're involved in that does not please God. But you're still praying for God to give you extra information when you won't be obedient with the information you already have. Why would God give you more to disobey him with? I don't think he'll tell you steps two, three, and four until you take step one, right? God's not gonna give you more to disobey him with. So if there's something that you ain't doing right right now, fix that, then he'll give you the next step. But I'll give you enough light for your feet. Take that step. And when you keep taking those steps, you get to the life that he planned for you. That's why we're biblically centered. It governs everything about our lives. Hebrews chapter four says, for the word of God is alive and and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. It cuts between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It cuts between my, my excuses and my fronting and my mask wearing and my posturing. And it goes beyond my Instagram and all the perfect life that I project. See, I I can fool you for 35 minutes on a stage where you don't get to ask questions. But when I'm alone and I'm reading the Bible, God will bring up something. I'll read it, and God will go right past your whole little preacher boy image and just goes right to the core of who you are and goes, boom, you're rebellious. And I need that. I need God to show me where I'm a fraud, where I'm duplicitous, or where I'm hypocritical, or when I'm just missing the life he had for me. 
I, I need that. And to know God is to know the Word. And to know the Word is to know God. This is how he's revealed himself to us. The next verses goes on to say, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. And what's he gonna hold me accountable to? His word. So I know that there's stuff in the Bible that's not socially acceptable or culturally appropriate. And I care, but I don't care because I'm not gonna stand before TMZ on Judgment Day, I'm standing before Jesus. There are things about, our, about the Bible that are not inappropriate in Middle Eastern cultures, but are inappropriate in the West. And then there's stuff in the Bible that's inappropriate in the, that's not inappropriate in the West that is inappropriate in the East. Why? Because cultures are always changing. You know what doesn't? God's word. So what's popular today is gonna to be unpopular 20 years from now, and it'll probably be more degenerate. I'm just gonna stick with the scriptures because that's the basis on which God will measure me. And wherever, my concern isn't how you don't measure up. Bro, for every one point finger, remember this goes back to elementary school, for every one finger of judgment I have towards you, I got four fingers pointing back at me. I got enough crap to deal with. So for you, I'm gonna give you tons of grace. Why? Because God is giving you grace right now. All of us have grace right now. There's just a day where grace is over. That's judgment day. You know, you can't wait till that day to get right. It's too late. It's too late. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. You don't have much time you got. That's the scariest thing about death. You don't know when it's coming. So you always need to be right with God. And we find that through the scriptures. So we're biblically centered. I hope you are also. Uh, and there's things in the Bible that I don't like. Like, I, I don't like forgiving people for doing horrible things. I, I, I don't like being nice to people I don't like. I don't like sharing with others. <laughs> I don't like putting my wife's needs above my own. I don't. I want my needs first, always. Right? So there's stuff in there. I don't like having to repent of personal sin or asking you for forgiveness when I've sinned against you. But all of these things are what the Bible says. There's been times when I didn't want to stay married. I didn't. I thought for sure I'd married the wrong woman. I was 100% convinced I was going to be this unhappy the rest of my life. And I think the reason why we made it is because I was still saying for the rest of my life. And you just, that's the secret to not getting divorced. You just don't leave. <laughs> and then at some point you just go, get so miserable you're like alright I'll apologize if that's what gets us past this misery <laughs> and then you doesn't matter anyway that's not the point of today's teaching biblically centered that's the point of today's teaching being biblically centered that's the path uh, number two outwardly focused from the first book of the Bible to the last the whole story is about a rescue mission we walked away from God and he's been coming after us ever since and he still does the same thing in your life too. Some of you guys, you're here because it feels like you can't get away from God. Like, like well, it's, he's like a hound dog. And once he like, got your scent, he just, like you just, you've been running, you've been running, and finally you ended up in a gutter. And you go, okay, please fix my mess. <laughs> C.S. Lewis referred to God as the hound of heaven. Isn't that good? Like, 
Is that Sean? Is he? Is he wandering? Hey, bud, where you at? Where you at? I'm hiding. You can't see me right now. You ever done that when you're a little kid or seen a little kid do that? And they're hiding. They close their eyes. Some of us, we do our dirt when nobody else is around, thinking God can't see it. Right? He just keeps chasing us. That's what he does. He's outwardly focused, man. Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. That's the whole point. I want to find people who are far from me. That's why I came. Because all y'all are far from me. <laughs> Everyone is disconnected. Everyone has sinned against a holy and righteous God, and everybody has been selfish to their neighbor. Everyone is broken. Everyone will fail the test on Judgment Day. Who doesn't accept that Jesus is the only one that got a perfect score, and he's willing to let you walk in with his grade sheet, which would be cheating, except that the teacher said that's the only way you pass this class, which is a weird metaphor that I don't like. I shouldn't have made that one up. Anyway, uh, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. When Jesus called his disciples, he told them, come and follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people that don't follow me. The end result of your spiritual maturity would be your passion for those who don't share your faith. The closer you are to God, the more you love those who are farthest from him. I don't know where we thought that the longer we're a Christian or the more spiritually mature we are, the more distance we should keep from the people that actually need our faith. That's insane. That's why Jesus got so much criticism, because they thought so too. They were upset that he was having lunch with sinners and prostitutes. Like you're defiling yourself and your reputation. And he goes, the whole thing's a rescue mission, dude, and if they don't feel loved by me, they'll never know that they're loved by God. We're outwardly focused. And I take this seriously. I'm a very passionate person about politics, but none of you know my politics, except maybe well, now I have to name the three people that I've been friends with the longest, right? But I don't, like I'm, I'm very opinionated when it comes to politics. Uh, and I have First Amendment rights, so I can say whatever I want about that. But as a follower of Jesus, I will voluntarily shut my mouth. Now, as a, as a private citizen, some of you on the right and the left you're just jerks. So you're not very much like Jesus. Um, vote how you want. I hope it's biblical. But there's enough in the Bible to kind of tick off both parties. Uh, there's a lot the Bible has to say about welcoming the immigrant and taking care of the poor and our responsibility to give and to be charitable. And there's a lot the Bible has to say about the sanctity of life and sexual ethics. So I don't think you can get to heaven on either party's platform. You know what I mean? Uh, that's why we don't talk about the politics up here. And that bothers you guys, some of you guys. I'm sorry. I don't want to let temporary American politics keep somebody eternally separated from Jesus. Amen. You know what I mean? And that, that's because we're outwardly focused. Jesus was asked to pick a political party when they said, should we give to Caesar or not? Because the zealots said we should resist paying taxes to Rome because we're funding the machine. They're right. And then the compromisers were saying, but this is the only way that we can live in prosperity is to live in some type of compromise with our authorities. And they're right. 
So is Jesus going to be like Simon the Zealot or Matthew the tax collector? You know, the funny thing is, is one was hardcore right, the other was hardcore left, and Jesus drafted them both to be on his team. And then I like to think of them sitting them next to each other at the Last Supper. <laughs> and just let them war. I just think that's funny that he drafted a far-right extremist and a far-left extremist. He picked them both. Now, I'm sure their relationship with Jesus changed things about the way they were before. Doesn't matter. My point is Jesus was asked to pick a side. Should we give to Caesar or not? Because if he says yes, then you're with the compromisers. If you say no, then you're with the, you're with the, the far right. So there's kind of like, which, which team does Jesus pick? That's a tough question. And Jesus goes, uh, whose image is on the coin? They go, Caesar's. He goes, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give it to God what belongs to God. Drop the mic, boom, I'm out, what's up? And Jay-Z music started coming on and people started, wow. that was weird. I don't even know what that was. I'm white, I'm a Baptist, and I'm a preacher's kid. I got three strikes against me having rhythm. Uh, but outwardly focused. You, you need to care more about them knowing God through their relationship with you than switching parties because of you. That's all I'm saying. Make the most important thing the most important thing in all of your interactions with people. Um, you can carry a big stick, walk, walk softly. You can speak truth as long as grace comes first. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Grace first, then truth. Uh, radical generosity is our third core value, radical generosity. Generosity is simply doing more than what's expected, more than what's owed. What does God owe you? What does God owe me? What does God owe you? What has he done for you, though? That's generosity. Doing more than what was expected, than what's deserved. God's been incredible. God is radically generous. And those who follow him should also be radically generous. Everything that we have comes to us from God. Everything. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, whatever is good and perfect came to you from God your Father. Acts chapter 2 says, it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. God, I pray for God to bless people so much that they see there's no, there must be a God. That's how the, the goodness of God leads to repentance. It's like, I can't explain this. So they start searching what's behind it and they find God. Boom. That's the goodness of God leads to repentance. Acts chapter 2. The goodness of God leads to repentance. Um, he's radically generous. Everything that I have comes to me from him. Some of us say, no, not everything. You don't know where I started. I had nothing. And look at all I built with my life with. I pulled myself by my own bootstraps. All right, who gave you those boots? Well, I bought those boots and I put them up with my own fingers. Who gave you those fingers then? Right? Everything you have, you have because you've leveraged nothing you earned. You didn't pick your personality. You didn't pick your IQ. You didn't pick your height. You didn't, like, everything that you've leveraged to become everything you are is borrowed. And there is coming a day where you have to give it all back to the person who loaned it to you. And then you are accountable for everything you did with everything you did with what he gave you. It all is from him, every bit of it. And it all goes back to him. And then you and I give an account for what we did with it. So as a steward, a manager of his resources, I want to be generous. I want to be generous. The Bible says to give to God first. You don't give to support a church. You give to God through a church. If you don't trust this church, go to a church that you do trust. I have no problems talking about money. You know why? Because I have a set salary. 
I don't, I don't get a commission. We were on vacation and I'm sitting at the table. Uh, it's an outdoor cafe. Billy Jane goes up to the room. Uh, Muslim dude sits down at the table next to me. He's like, uh, I'm like, hey man, blah, 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 whatever. And he goes, yeah, and, and I'm Muslim. I'm like, ooh, here's my chance. And he goes, what do you do? I go, I'm a pastor of a church. And he, I'm sure he was thinking, ooh, here's my chance. Now we're both gonna try to convert each other. Uh, it was a very cool conversation. So he goes, so like being a pastor is your job? And I go, I go, yeah. He goes, so like you take everybody's tithes? And I was like, I wish. Everybody's tithes, holy crap. I don't need the lottery now, right? Uh, I said, no, I have, a, I have a salary. I have a salary, it's set. He goes, so what if somebody gives like a million dollars? We get to start 10 more churches. I don't get a piece of that. I don't. <laughs> yeah, so I like... What you give does not impact what I make, so I don't have a problem talking about money. Uh, my salary is set by trustees. The trustees are members of the church, right? So like that's where all this accountability. So I'd, you give him, honestly, if you gave him a million dollars a day, we could fund 10 more new church plants here in New England. Or build 20 new feeding centers in third world countries. And that is what we would do with it. Or you could give two million and we could do them both. Or you can give $5 million and we can put a down payment on a permanent facility for the Avon location. Amen. And there's a couple of properties we're looking at. So somebody needs to pony up to the bar. Dang it. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. Or you give $7 million and then we can do that for this location. And we can put an extra $2 million down for the Bridgewater location because the Bridgewater location and the Avon locations are the only ones that are renting. So we're at the, you know, we're at the discretion of our, our, our landlord. I'm just, I'm just saying... I've got no problem talking about this because my wife and I model this. My wife and I, and I we're, we're now I, like, don't tell. Now I, now I brought it. Dang it. Now I wish. Okay, so my wife and I, we're still in the top givers here at Grace Church. Like I, and the reason, I don't tell you that because I, I, I want kudos, but this is where you should clap for me. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Um, I believe this with all of my heart. That's why I share that. I believe this with all of my heart. And by God's grace, I had parents that modeled this for me. When I got my first $10 for mowing grass, my dad told me I'd, that the first dollar belonged to God. I thought God was being a sucker because he could have asked for five. I was like, he only wanted one? <laughs> sucker! Right? I, get it, I, get it, but I thought that was great. And my wife's parents are saying this. So for us, it's never been a thing. And I know for some of you guys, it's rough. But because of this, view, uh, this value of radical generosity, it's why I say this every time we take up an offering. If you showed up today in need, you came to the right church. If you don't have any groceries in your pantry, you're about to have a utility shut off, or your kids need sneakers, we will help buy those for you today. That money doesn't come from anywhere else. It comes from the radical generosity of the people who are in this church. And we can be as radically generous as a church family as you are personally. I would always rather, rather err on the side of generosity than caution because I think it reflects the heart of God. God has forgiven me recklessly. I should be reckless in my, like, you understand? Like, I, I'm responsible. So the first goes to God. And outside of that, I'm still responsible to take care of my responsibilities and to be generous towards those in need. So this is what all Christians should do. And the fourth value is that we're personally involved in the mission. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says, carry each other's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? To love your neighbors yourself. You can't love your neighbors yourself by having thoughts and feelings. You love your neighbors as yourself when you help carry their burdens. And I'm going to be completely honest with you, 
dang it, I said it again. I hate when preachers say that. Because I'm going to be honest with you. Oh, so you were lying the whole rest of the sermon? Apparently. So let me be honest with you. Right? I hate that. Um, this last one is the hardest one for me. Because carrying other people's burdens is a pain in the butt. Am I allowed to say that? I have enough problems of my own to help you with yours, especially if you're the reason why you're having problems. Amen. I feel like sucks to be you. You ever thought that about anybody? Okay, I'm just, can I be? <laughs> oh, wow, you, you're really going in right now, preacher. I don't think you should be a preacher anymore. You don't qualify. Uh, it's also really inconvenient because I was already doing something. We're about to go do something. And now you need help with something that I ain't responsible for. But it's what Jesus would do. Jesus wasn't responsible for their dirty feet. And he's the son of God. So he takes off his apron and he gets on his hands and knees and he washes the crud out from between the toes of his disciples. That's what it means to be personally involved. It means that you do something. You do something. Like, what is it that you want to do but doesn't benefit you or anybody that's in your family or friends? That's the thing. What is it? You don't get credit for it. It doesn't get on your resume. It's you sacrificial. Like, it's good to give money, but God will not be bought off. He still wants us to give of our time and our energy to people that need help, like actual help. Like, there, there are older people. You know what's crazy? I'm thinking about telling a story, and the person's in this room, and they know I'm thinking about them. There are people in this room that are carrying burdens that would crush you on any normal day. And they just need people to just actually give a freaking flip that they're going through it. They don't need you to solve their problem. Just love them through it. But it's inconvenient. It's what, it's what Christians do, man. We make our neighborhoods better. We make our streets better. Our place of business thrives because we're there. Like, we actually add value to other people. This is what it does. We go out of our way. We help other people meet deadlines. And then we let them keep the full commission. Like, that's what I'm saying. And we don't, we don't lie on our time cards, man. We can be counted on. We love God and we know we're accountable. And everything that we have comes from him. And we know that we can't outgive God. Like he, it's just like my son with, the, with my time, with everything. When I give him a bowl of Fruit Loops, he... And I'll ask for the first bite. He always says no because he's afraid if he gives me a bite of Fruit Loops, he'll have less. But he doesn't know I've got a whole freaking bag of Fruit Loops. I just wanted the first, like, can I trust you with what I give you, the time that I give you, the gifts I've given you, the, the talent, your abilities? All of these things are not just to make, you're not the hero of the story, God is. Every one of us is supporting actors. Nobody likes the supporting actor who thinks they're the star of the show. That's our boss. 
people we work for, sometimes they're like that. Well, I don't know which one of these you need to work on, but I'm sure you're not batting a thousand on all of them. And, and I, hope, I hope these things are already a part of your values that shape your decisions, that make the life that you want. But you need to be biblically centered. You're gonna miss everything God intended for you. If you're not outwardly focused, you're gonna mistakenly think the whole world revolves around you and you're gonna live the rest of this life disappointed and frustrated because it isn't. Constantly shocked that nobody does what you want. It's never been about me. It never has. And to be radically generous, everything I, I don't wanna live in fear. Everything that I have comes to me from God, even my time. And I want him to say at the end, you rocked that. You rocked it, you killed it, kid. Like I want that. You know, there's nothing better for a coach than when the kid changes their shot at the free throw line because the coach said so, and then to see the kid become a better free throw shooter. God's never gonna put anything in your heart that isn't gonna improve your average. You can either trust the coach or not. Right, like I've, I wanna be a starter, that's it. I just, I just wanna play as much playing time as he thinks I'm capable of, that's it. I wanna finish the game. I don't care if anybody carries me out on their shoulders. I just don't wanna get on the bus at the end with a clean jersey. I want to have actually played, gotten dirty. I want blood on my uniform. You know what I mean? I want God to go, you killed it. That's it, that's what I want. Let's pray. God, I love you with all my heart. And I'm thankful that you love us. I'm very grateful. Help us to trust you. It is scary, especially when you don't tell us where all this is going, especially if the next thing that we have to do is some huge act of obedience or sacrifice. It is terrifying. And so some of us have balked and we're kind of stuck. We're afraid to let that bad relationship go or we're afraid to admit that we've sinned against that person and ask for their forgiveness. Like, or whatever it is, like there's just something there that like we're afraid of in obeying you. And it's just because we don't trust you. Help us to trust you enough to obey you enough to do what you say. Help us to be biblically centered. Help us to constantly be aware of the way that our actions affect other people. Help us to be outwardly focused. Help us to recognize that the greatest good our kids in the world is not to make money, but to make a difference. That the legacy and the heritage I pass on to my children is spiritual wealth more than financial wealth. God, if we teach our kids to become billionaires and they gain the whole world but lose their own soul, we have failed as parents. Dear God, bless our kids. Bless them. Help us to be good examples for them. Give kids to those that want them and can't. But God, help us to be outwardly focused. Help us to be generous and to be kind. To be open-handed toward the people that we're around and that need our help and our ability and our time. God, give us energy for this. And we go through seasons when we're more or less available. Help us to recognize the season that we're in and help us to live to the fullest capacity of the season that we're in. Not our fullest potential, because there's always more of that, but to our capacity. God, some of us just need rest, to be loved on, to be served. Help us as the body of Christ to listen to your Holy Spirit, to recognize when somebody needs an extra word of encouragement or somebody to tell them that we're gonna pray for them. God, prompt us throughout the week to send an encouraging text, uh, a gift card, or to do a door dash for somebody in need or God, just help us to be your hands and feet in the world.
Let every little act of obedience lead to the good and perfect life you intended for us. This is our prayer. We ask this in the name of Jesus and we all say it together. Amen. I'm gonna ask you to do something. We ask you to do this three times a year. And I ask you to check in with us and let us know how you're doing. So I'm gonna ask you to open up your cell phone and go to that'sgrace.org slash check in. If you've done this before, it'll automatically pull up with your profile. If you don't have a profile, just give us your name and email address, that's fine. But I'm just gonna ask you 10 questions. How are you doing in this? And you can go click, 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 click. It's that quick. And you're saying, this is where I'm at. These are markers that should be evident in the life of a healthy Christian. There's a question that says, on a scale of one to 10, how are you doing physically, spiritually, and emotionally? We have a program that just, here's the thing. Our church is not successful because we put butts in seats. Our church is only as successful as our ability to actually help you, like you, you, take your next steps as followers of Jesus. But I don't have time for 400 conversations. So how do we find out how you personally are doing? And one of our executive pastors, Brian, came up with this idea. So he actually has a program that if somebody's numbers drop more than two points, we know to send them an email. And then one of us would like, like if you're like, you're like a six on the emotionally healthy, and then today you're like a three, I'm just gonna send you an email and say, hey man, I noticed you're having a hard time right now, how can I pray for you? That's it. You could just say, I'm all set, I was just having a bad day. I'm gonna let it go, right? Nobody here wants to get into anybody's business. I just don't want you to be invisible if you don't want to be invisible. But some of you, you're new, you don't know us, so you don't trust us, that's all. You're not skeptical, it's just you don't know us. So if you wanna stay invisible, you can. But as a pastor, I feel like my job is just to help you take a next step, whatever that is. The last question is, uh, what do you think is holding you back in your life right now? Uh, me and two other pastors, we read all of those. So like if you put anything in there, like I won't have time to check everybody's numbers. So six, five, four, three, two, eight, nine, two. Like I, I won't, we have a program that helps with the numbers, but like whatever you write at the bottom, for sure. So if you need anything, or if there's any way that I can personally help you or one of the other pastors help you grow in your relationship with God, please say something. I don't want anybody to feel like you've been coming to this church for a year and nobody gives a rat's butt that you even exist because it's not true. We just might not have seen you yet. That's all. If you get involved, you'll be seen by a lot of people, truthfully. Uh, and we're gonna take communion. Some of you ask, why don't we take communion more often? But Jesus, the last supper that we observed that's in the Bible, he took it on Passover. So I grew up in a church that only did it on Passover Sunday. We took communion once a year. I moved out here and the Catholic churches, well, Catholic churches do it every single Sunday, but there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to take it every Sunday. And then um, the, the Protestant churches do it once a month. The Bible never actually says how often you take communion. It just says, do it the right way as often as you do it. We're going to read that in a second. But we take communion on the three Sundays of the year where we're likely to have the least number of non-religious people. That's a holiday. So we're thinking that, you know, people that might, oh, I'm kind of Christian or whatever, they're going to skip today. So the people who are here today, you're wanting to use some Jesus, right? I'm glad you're here because communion is for those who are serious about following Jesus. And I don't want to do it on another Sunday where there might be a lot of people who would go, I'm not going to do it then. And then we're like, oh, I wonder why they didn't do it. 
I don't want it to be about the haves and haves nots, right? So we just pick three Sundays where we know we're going to have the least number of new people and the highest percentage of regulars. So that's today. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage of scripture that talks most clearly about how to take it. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to start reading in verse 23. Where it says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it, then he broke it in pieces, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, and he said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, and it's an agreement that has to be confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you do it. And then Paul's talking, and Paul says, for every time you eat the bread and drink the cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So it's a celebration of what it cost. No, it's not a celebration. It's a memorial to what it cost for me to so flippantly just say I'm sorry. Like the gravity of this is supposed to make me feel different about it. That's all. And Jesus said, that's the right way to take it. So anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy fashion is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Jesus. That's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. What do I examine for? Well, whether or not I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus or not. If you're not, don't take it. I mean, you can do whatever you want. No one's gonna come over and smack it out of your hand. But I, I don't want you to be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Jesus. So what does it mean to examine myself? One, am I a child of God through faith in Jesus? Two, is there any unconfessed sin in my heart? Give me three minutes and I can be completely clean and in right relationship with God. I just need time to confess. Not to me, there's one mediator between God and men, that's Jesus. I can't forgive your sins because I didn't pay for them. Jesus can. And that's how we examine ourselves. But if you would examine yourselves, we would not be judged by God. And yet when we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so it will not be condemned. So my dear brothers and sisters, where you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray. And what I want you to do is I'm going to ask everybody if you would bow your head. And if you're not sure, you're a child of God. But you know what you believe about Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins, having never sinned himself? Do you believe he rose from the dead with new life to give you a brand new canvas? A brand new life, yes or no? Then if you believe, then put your faith in him. God, I'm going to trust you to forgive my sin and make me yours. I'm jumping off the table right now. I trust you to save me, to forgive me, and make me yours. I'm just going to trust you. I don't deserve this, and you know that. I would never ask you to die on the cross for my sins. But since you volunteered, I would be crazy to ignore that. So save me too. If you're already a child of God by faith in Jesus, your prayer is, God, is there anything in my life that you don't want in it? Is there anything I'm doing that you don't want done? Is there anything I'm not doing that you want done? 
God, just show me, man. Light my feet. Show me the next step in my path and I'll take it. Make that your prayer. And we ask for your forgiveness and we thank you for your love, your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we all say, amen. So if you would, the bottom part has the bread. And my wife has a dietary restriction. So she asked, is the body of Jesus gluten-free? And I'm happy to tell you he is. And uh, the, the wine is actually non-alcoholic grape juice. A lady walked up after last service. She said, I'm an alcoholic. And I had to smell it first. I was really nervous. So if you're going to do the thing about the gluten-free, can you do the thing about the wine? Absolutely. It's just grape juice. All right. Uh, then Jesus broke the bread into pieces and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.